0: I can't go on. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on April the 6th, 2012. Newcomers, make sure you, you use the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There's over 1,000 audios for download for free. Where hopefully you understand this big system that runs the world Always has run the world really And you understand once you understand the early parts of the system Where it went from, from ancient uh, times to the present uh, As to where the world's been taken today It's always been run really by uh, the, the, the mercantile guys and the mercantile banks In fact, that started off the whole agenda of controlling not just nations but the whole planet And, of course, under all the central banking systems, they put in the private ones. They then connect them under a grouping uh, that's under the the Bank for International Settlements. And that really is a form of World Bank, really. It's it's the whole structure of banking under one small clique that that runs the whole world. And everything from that. That's your whole system of government, your whole way of life, in fact, revolves around to put these bankers decide for the future. It's power, of course, and it's total domination and control. And they, they, have, they do allow you to have a good time now and then, uh, at weekends and things like that. People get drunk out of their skulls and forget their problems as we all go down the tubes paying debt off, this funny thing called debt. It's a very, very strange thing. And... Um, I go through that, too, and describe the big foundations fronting for the big international money lenders uh, that fund all the NGOs. This is a new form of democracy, NGOs, you see. They're all funded by the big foundations. They demand things from government. They've got the numbers, and they turn up when they're ordered to uh, to protest governments and to get what they want. So I hope you the audios, and remember, too, uh, that you are the audience that bring me to you. I don't have any shares in anything that's sold as products. I don't push any products. Uh, and um, the only thing I sell are the discs and the books on CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. So if you want to support me, you can order from the U.S. by personal check if you want, or international postal money order from the U.S. to Canada. Uh, you can use, use PayPal. Some people send cash, and, uh, and donations are really, really welcome Across the world, you Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal once again. But if you don't understand the history of uh, the banking systems and the money boys, even from, as I say, from the ancient times to the present, you will not understand what's happening today. You're born into a system. You take it for granted because your parents took it for granted as well. We go through a farce called democracy. It stops revolutions happening because you vote the last bunch out. That's what you do. And vote another bunch in. we have given you another bunch of the same promises. And you believe it again. It's just we live in hope. You see, we have an optimism center in the brain. The big boys talk about that. They've got the whole brain map, to put it, basically, and they can they can aim for any particular part that they want in many different ways too. But uh, we are optimistic creatures. Natural life itself is optimistic. Every creature tries to live. It's incredible uh, what animals and man will go to, even at the end of life, when you when you, you don't want to die. And this big machine just keeps on trying to live and live and live. So, uh, and while at the same time we're even killed off as well. If you, if you don't understand the history of ancient wars, why they happened, who was behind it, uh, financiers are always behind it because you need money to get armies formed that stay together and don't wander off home. They need payments, you see, from the earliest times to the day. And even the ancient Phoenicians tried to standardize their silver coinage across the ancient world by using other countries which they'd already dominated through debt and using their armies. And nothing much has really changed to the present except that we're almost all on uh, their system. The last few countries that are not are being bombed out of existence or starved. And uh, it goes on. We're not far really from the end of this part of the agenda. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, we're back cutting through the matrix and talking about the system in which you're born Which has an agenda, of course, it's always got to have an agenda, it cannot become stagnant Or they begin to lose control, and they know this from previous experience by working their trade down through the centuries They've got to have big plans and always keep us on edge, of course When we're on edge, we actually turn to the abuser, which is government, and that's the function of government and um, we get nervous and expect them to solve things. Big Daddy is going to help you out here. And that'll be our first when it happens. But anyway, we still believe in this nonsense because we're brainwashed into believing it. And... I've read quite a few excerpts over the last week or so from Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope, but there's a few main ones in it because he wasn't just an ordinary professor. He was the an honour that they give in the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, one of the few to get the honour of going into the archives, that's the inner circle, where they have their own version of history. And uh, he wasn't some, as I say, professor living on his ego, which is mainly what professors do, uh, apart from the, the massive grants they get, too. And uh, he was, was high up there in governmental circles and taught lots of people that ended up in government, too, and especially the foreign stations that send abroad. But it says he was professor of history at Georgetown University from 1941 to 1976. He also taught at Princeton and at Harvard and lectured at the Brookings Institution. He was a frequent lecturer at the U.S. Naval Weapons Laboratory, the Foreign Service Institute, he trained lots of them, and the Naval College at Norfolk, Virginia. In 1958, he served as a consultant to the Congressional Select Committee, which set up the National Space Agency. He's a real insider. In 1964, he was a consultant at the Navy Postgraduate School, Monterey, California, on Project Seabed. The project was created to visualize the status of future American weapons systems. And this, again, this link I'll put up tonight has different parts of uh, quotes from different parts of his book. Uh, mainly the, uh, tragedy and hope, and it says this is what he said in it. He says there does exist an international Anglophile network. In other words, they speak English mainly. Doesn't mean they are ethnically English, but um, and it's based in London, of course, and New York. And uh, it says which we may identify as the Round Table groups. Now the Round Table groups. I'll just add this to it. Uh, came out with the Rhodes uh, Society and Foundation. There was a merger of Cesar Rhodes and Lord Rothschild uh, to take over the world's resources and, and the countries and use Britain as the, and the Commonwealth as a, a basis to build a, the new world order on, basically, a global society owned by the bankers. And they merged with the Milner group, and he came actually from Germany, um, Milner. And eventually he was called Lord Milner, Alfred Milner. And he helped start wars across the world. The Boer War was the first one he orchestrated. And then they merged with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, the Milner Group, and became the Royal Institute for International Affairs, or the Council on Foreign Relations in other countries. Anyway, he says, I know of the operations of this network because I've studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or most of its aims, and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected to a few of its policies, but in general my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. And he wrote about it in Tragedy and Hope and the other book, at The Anglo-American Establishment, which, which you must read if you want to understand anything at all. And it says here, It says that, another quote, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. The system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world. Remember that part. Acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. So in other words, through the creation of crisis and everything else, they always give you the solution is to amalgamate, just like businesses, because they run all the big businesses too. And that actually own, they are, they are, they own the companies that, that build, of the military industrial complex. They own them, these big bankers. And um after reading that there, a world system of central banks run a feudalistic system, and, but at the top two, it was to be run by the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, and that's where they go every year, as you can watch them at the WEF. And then you go to this article here that's just come out, it says, Eurozone, Eurozone, the whole of Europe now, this amalgamation of Europe, because of, you know, financial crisis, it's going to help them all become wealthy, all the people, you see, and they're all in utter poverty and debt now. Which of course is natural because the same bankers had every nation as nations in massive debt for centuries. Now they've got the whole of Europe under their, 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 fist basically. And they've got them all in even worse debt than ever before. And that's of course the plan. And of course the answer to everything each, when they, when they get into more and more debt and they bail each other out is more debt. Isn't that wonderful, eh? More amalgam- amalgamation and more debt. Eurozone finance ministers agreed last week to expand the capacity of the Euro bailout funds to around eight hundred billion euros or one trillion dollars. The move was intended to calm global markets, calm them by getting midbrillian day, by creating a so called firewall against further Eurozone sovereign debt contagion, second like infection, you see while eliciting new financing from the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund, too, quickly goes uh, on about that as well. It's a big debt collector. Still, markets have continued to react cautiously due to concerns that the debt crisis is shifting to Spain. The agreement to enlarge the Eurozone funds is primarily a political success. Yeah, It isn't for the people, though, says the European Council on Foreign Relations, eh? It's a success. The, the European Council on Foreign Relations, every top member of every country in Europe, the President's Prime Ministers, are all members of this council. And, uh, and of course, even Sarkozy was ahead of it for a while, don't he, still is. It says, This is an intermediate step on the long and difficult journey towards a sufficiently strong system of government for the Eurozone. Clough argues, as a writer, in, or, in order for the Eurozone to have a successful future... He says it will have to acquire sooner rather than later further federal features, such as a treasury, a bigger federal budget, and new mechanisms for financial transfers. And so what it means is that the Europeans have worked out a compromise between themselves. No, the public had nothing to do with this, remember. Which may be now seen as sufficiently credible by non-European powers, such as Brazil and others, to make good on offering further backing for the Eurozone through the International Monetary Fund. In that sense, the agreement is a political success. Though there's some scepticism in quarters in the city of London and other financial centres that the firewall is actually big enough or efficient enough to come up with the money in a crisis scenario. Well, there's that London again. We're all kind of began, uh, at least this section of it, this uh, this part of it, this era of it, you might say. And um, because I've had other capitals down through the centuries, but uh, it's just like quickly said in the 60s. This was their plan, and he named the organizations, he named the the types of banks and the Bank for International Settlements. And, of course, too, he also said they'd amalgamate the whole of Europe into one political structure, which they did. But, mind you, he he read Karl Marx, too. Marx mentioned it as well long before. So uh, you're living in a a script, is what I'm saying, if you understand that script. And it isn't just to do with money. Money is a source of power, and they use the power. It's the power they want, understand, to either breed you up or or cull you off, and of course we're in the culling phase and have been for a while. That's why hospitals you can't build enough of them today. But uh, you're you're farmed by the good shepherds. You see, they're good to themselves. They're always good to themselves, but uh, that's just the way of it. And it's been this way for an awful long time. They've got to keep the public ignorant and dumbed down. Uh, we've got the worst education we've ha- ever had, actually which is essential for this part of the, the agenda. Member two, Bertrand Russell and others, who worked with the same organization for the same goal, said that uh, they'd make people basically hedonistic and uh, self-centered, everything revolves around them, and narcissistic, he said, too. That's happened. You could, youngsters are poor as could be. They really are working their they're, they're make-work jobs that are generally funded by the government, like Britain. Almost every job they get is funded by the government. It's a totally socialist system now. Bankers create socialism. and They love it because government always borrows more from them, you see. And um, and the youngsters just party all weekend and get smashed at their skulls. That's what they do. They have no other future. And they know it. And they're told this to be happy. And in fact, there's a whole organization come out of the United Nations too, which is pushing it across the whole world now. It's wellness, you see. See, it's more important that you feel well and happy and good about yourself than than actually acquiring a a better accommodation and getting out of your your filthy digs, as you call it, over there. But you can't afford to get out of it. It's it's more important to feel good about it. You can put up with the filthy digs and accept your status in life that's stuck there forever. And it's all to do with being happy. And they put massive government campaigns out across the whole of Europe. And it's funded, again, by... These big organisations belonging to the United Nations that belongs to the Council of Foreign Relations—quite something. Just be happy. Stacks of ads and all, but just be happy. Why do you think they promote all the uh, the booze campaigns on the television? And always have done. Just be happy. So they work on these miserable jobs. The ones that can get jobs, that is they is—they're government funded. Some of them actually don't get any paychecks at all for three months and then because the government created jobs for these private um, entrepreneurs they get startup pay for being an entrepreneur and hiring so many people but you don't have to pay them for three months and then in the end of three months you, d- you just fire them and get a whole bunch of new free workers in what a disgusting slavery system because that's what it is see things as they are not how you're told that they are and that's what media's there for to tell you the spin you see to alter your perception of things they do all the time All the time And music is coming in So I'll be back with more after these messages Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the Matrix, talking about really the system you're born in and how it really really operates and where it's going because it's very well uh, orchestrated and coordinated by the, those at the top. Mind you, they've got thousands of think tanks across the world working on every aspect of society and, and the social aspects of your personal lives, how you'll be managed, etc. Are you being managed well? Can they manage you even better? Without you knowing it, of course. But Quigley also talked, Professor Carl Quigley also talked about uh, eventually these central banks would take over the fiscal policies of every country. Well, that's already happened, basically, just recently, last few days. And um, it will be run by technocrats, appointed people that uh, the banks themselves will appoint and approve of. Now, the banks also, of course, one of the mainstays is to, is to fund universities and recruit from universities, certain universities especially, uh, to, to keep their system going and bring people into their fold, so to speak, in a lower capacity. They never get to the top, but they get a, an awfully good wage, believe you me. And um, and of course, they keep us all in check, knowingly too, because, because they know they're manipulating us at the top, because um, even though they're hired themselves, these guys, they're they, they, they paid they pay so well to keep the structure going, that they, they don't turn it down, they're given an offer they don't want to refuse. But here's an article here, it says the German government has long argued that strict fiscal discipline is the only way out of the euro crisis. See? So they cause the crisis, they get what they want, so they get an amalgamated uh, banking system and a central bank, and they all meet in Switzerland every year, like Carol quickly said in the 60s. It says now German finance minister Wolfgang Schobel has come up with a new idea, oh, must have a bright guy, Mr. Schauble, eh? for keeping countries on the path of virtue, whatever that means. What's, what's the path of virtue? And you, you know, no one ever, none of these reporters ever asked the pertinent questions. It's like when Bush Senior said the New World is coming into view and stuff like that. None of them says, what do you mean? Could you explain that? Not one single reporter across the planet asked that question. Mind you, they own all the, all the newspapers. He wants independent panels of academics to keep a close eye on states' budgets. These are nations. We call them states now. Budgets. So uh, who is these independent panels and who's going to vote them in and all that? Well, they're not getting voted in by you. So German Chancellor Angela Merkel and her finance minister, almost oh, her fiancé there, Wolfgang Schroebel, was able to get their pet project of a European fiscal pact accepted by most of the European Union's member states. Now, the public are never asked anything. I wish you stopped using these terms like the Union and the U- Europe and Europeans or British or whatever or Americans for that matter because nobody gets a say in anything. Now Schobel has come up with a new idea for improving the monitoring and coordination of the fiscal policy. It's according to an internal finance ministry document obtained by Spiegel. Schobel plans to propose creating independent panels of experts. Hey, oh, wonderful! More experts at both the Nash How how we got all these experts there, but we're always broke? We're always crashing, and the banks are always crashing. How come, how come these economists always get it wrong? But it doesn't matter. We've got a new breed of them, you see, that's been hatched, and they're going to help manage the whole of the EU by being appointed over all the central banks, etc. And doing your bookkeeping, how much will you spend on the poor, how much will you spend on healthcare? that kind of stuff. You know, the trivial stuff, that's what they'd say. Anyway, it's both the national and EU level, who would monitor fiscal policies in the member states, the Eurozone, and the EU as a whole. They would be responsible for sounding a warning if they see government's budgetary policies straying off course. Oh, oh my God, why weren't they there before the bank crashes, eh? Oh, <laughs> rubbish, eh? So they've got what they wanted, and, and, and what Carl Quigley called for, uh, that they were calling for back in the 60s. And he knew their plan, which was on the go before even he was born. The panels which would be comprised or composed mainly of academics would also be charged with checking the compatibility of financial, of national fiscal policies with European and national requirements. Well, what are they? Eh? As well as the implementation of national and European regulations. It's all your law system, legal system. According to the Finance Ministry document, those regulations would include the tougher EU Stability Pact. Which was adopted at a summit in March 2011, as well as a new fiscal pact which 25 EU countries have agreed to introduce. In addition, Schroppel's ministry is also proposing that the role of the EU's economic and finance affairs commissioner, a position currently held by Finland's Oli Ren, by strengthening in the future, by strengthened in the future, or be strengthened, his position that is. According to the ministry document, the commissioner should be able to implement EU regulations without the other commissioners or the Commission president having the right to object. So in other words, they've got carte blanche to do whatever they want. These appointed experts, you see, from academia. Isn't that wonderful? That's called democracy, you know. That's democracy in action. Who, who really believes in democracy? Do you really believe you've got it or you've ever had it? Do you really still believe that? Oh. Improving member states' budgetary discipline has been a recurring theme in Chancellor Merkel and Finance ministers' shovels efforts to fight the European debt crisis. And Berlin, remember, these are the same central banks that cr- created their, their head central bank for Europe. The same central banks that had every country broke when they were just nations. Remember that. Anyway, Berlin put pressure on other countries to sign up to the fiscal pact. I what kind of pressure he put on them? Eh? Which will introduce tougher rules for budget offenders. So he's going to start fining countries. Understand? That's what it's all about: fining countries to punish you. If you go over budget, remember when they set up the United Nations and even the League of Nations before that. They're just the Phoenix. It's the United Nations, the Phoenix bird of the, of the League of Nations. And they talked about eventually they'll just redistribute the food across the world. All the food will come to them and they'll distribute it. And uh, they said it's in order to keep your, your populations in check. And if you your population goes up. Then aren't going to give you an extra cash, and of course, your ration will always be going down. You know, that's part of the agenda. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watts. We're cutting through the Matrix, just talking about how nothing is happening by itself. You're living through a very old agenda, and they go through the generations just one by one, a little bit here, a little bit change there, until they get exactly the society that they want, that will accept uh, being pushed into amalgamations uh, like the European Union. And, of course, they're still working on the the American Union. They they call it different names because there's more people a a, a bit aware in the US and Canada than what we're in Europe, basically, and also Pacific Rim region. That's three blocks, you see, like Karl Marx talked about. And here's uh, an article. He's he's a, some good stuff here, actually, from from George Orwell's 1984, because you see, George Orwell uh, was groomed for the same kind of position in the high ups, uh, at managing the public. In fact, he was the chief propagandist for the BBC during World War II. And it's possible, actually, he wrote the book uh, because they kind of dropped him after that. I think he, he may have wanted to go higher. It's very possible. But he l- lets the same thing out. If, if you understand how to read and what you're reading, he says here. This is this is the part about the, the part about the truth where he's given the dictionary with the second pages stuck to it that tells you the real system, although he's been set up by a Brian, who is in the inner party. And it's just like the CFR, in fact, which of course he's really referring to, there's an inner party and an outer party, a Thrall Institute of International Affairs too. And it says, but the problems of perpetuating a hierarchical society go deeper than this. This is page 184. There are only four ways in which a ruling group can fall from power. Either it is conquered from without, or it is governed so inefficiently that the masses are stirred to revolt, or... It allows a strong and discontented middle group to come into being. It says, or loses its own self-confidence and willingness to govern. In the past, you see, in the Middle Ages, the elite were very um, spoiled, incredibly spoiled, didn't you they They'd go around having world meetings and all that. And um, it often became so lazy and lackadaisical that uh, others could take over. And, and it says, um, a ruling class which could guard against all of them would remain in power permanently. Ultimately, the determining factor is the mental attitude of the ruling class itself. After the middle of the present century, the first danger had in reality disappeared. Each of the three powers, which now divide the world, this is 1948, talking about a three-block governing system of the whole world, just like we're in today. And he says... um, each of the three powers which now divide the world is in fact unconquerable and could only become conquerable through slowly, uh, slow democratic changes which a government with wide powers can easily avert. The second also danger is also a theoretical one. The masses never revolt of their own accord. That is history. And they never revolt merely because they are oppressed. Indeed, so long as they are not permitted to have standards of comparison, they never even become aware that they are oppressed. You understand, during the 20th century, you could always see how other countries lived and the standards of living. Now you're not seeing it so much. So you have nothing to compare. As you go down, and you're, 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 you're drastically reduced consumption, that's part of the agenda of proposed consumerist society now, you see. You have nothing to compare it to. And if anything, actually, you'll be comparing it to the rising standards of a few, really, in India and Brazil and elsewhere. And they're their own elites. You watch them go up even more, more stinking rich than they are already. The c- recurrent economic crises of past times were totally unnecessary and are, now, are not now permitted to happen. But other and equally large dislocations can and do happen without having political results, because there is no way in which discontent can become articulate. I remember watching one of the, the big meetings against um, the g 20 and I think it was held in London. And one of the politicians actually came forward in the crowd. You may remember it yourselves. And he asked them, what were they angry about? And none of them could verbalize their real problem. They were all angry. It's a, whole, it's, it's, it's a, it's a multiple anger. And when they're angry, they, they can't even fix their minds into articulating what's wrong. It's everything to them. Everything's wrong. But they can't say what it is, specifically. Because they, often they don't know. And it says here, um, they never even become aware that they are oppressed. The, the recurrent economic crises of past times were totally necessary, blah, blah, blah. And they can't articulate it. As for the problem of overproduction, which has been latent in our society since the development of machine technique, it is solved by the device of continuous warfare. How long have you been at war? Do you remember Gulf War One? It's ongoing. I read the article from the military magazine, too, on continuous perpetual war. That's what what you've got from now on. And if it's not overt war outside, you see, it's war on you and airports and everywhere else, and cops are getting more powers and and so on, and they can be at war with you. Because one of the prime, this is me speaking here, of course, the the prime uh, reasons for warfare is to change society by those who own it. (laughs) Anyway, it says here, as for the problem of overproduction, it's been overcome, blah, 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 because it's solved by the device of continuous warfare which is also useful in key, keying up public morale to, to the necessary pitch. Do you remember the Green Party in Britain uh, two or three years ago? She's, talking, she's really talking about post-consumer society. But she says, we've got to get the public ready for this. And she says, if we can get them to the same war situ- mentality as they had in World War II, when they would accept rationing, accept being hard up, no hard, little of cash, and, and accept being ruled in a non-democratic fashion, uh, she says, well, then we can get this through, this global society of post-consumerist society. And it says here, continuous warfare is also keying up from public morality to the necessary pitch. From the point of view of her present rulers, therefore, only the genuine dangers are the splitting off of a new group of able, underemployed, power-hungry people and the growth of liberalism and skepticism in their own ranks. The problem that, that it is to say is educational. It is a problem of continuously moulding the consciousness both of the directing group and of the larger executive group that lies immediately below it. The consciousness of this uh, of the masses need only to be influenced in a negative way. That's that's uh, basically uh, what uh, Isaiah Berlin uh, was teaching Tony Blair and others, many others before him and after him. Uh, at least before him, I should say. And in other words, you've got to make sure that the, the upper classes and your upper middle class who run help run the world for their masters will push things forward. And he's talking about things really much like um, conservation, uh, eating less, being, uh, and doing what you're told. All, all I've got is GM food now to save the world. Utter rubbish because the same bankers own the GM industry. They own all the pretty well, all of the farming industries, a small percentage now in private hands that had a war on the farmer for 40-odd years or more. And they make sure that the people at the bottom are given the most dumbed-down, uh, the proles, they call them, of course, here, dumbed-down um, education. And it's a book you've got to basically read right through. You'll enjoy it, too. It's far more deeper, of course, than the movies can be. There's two, two movies out on it. But uh, it, it goes into detail of how society is actually run. And um, it says here, and in another page here, it says, um, its rulers are not held together by blood ties, but by adherence to a common doctrine. You understand, if you're upper middle class and you're psychopathic, you'll sniff the wind. You know where, where your your benefit lay, lies for yourself. And um, you get in on it, you see. And you will parrot as though it was gospel truth from, from a deity itself. That It's that's, that's like global warming. It doesn't matter how much evidence you bring against it. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. There's no no dissent amongst their own ranks. Because they know that. They're out the door if it happens. So its rules are not held together. But it's just true that our society is stratified and very rigidly stratified on what at first sight might appear to be hereditary lines. Well, there's, there's definitely hereditary lines in a certain bunch of them at the top. There's far less to and fro movement between different groups than happened under capitalism or even in the pre-industrial ages. Between the two branches of the party, there's a certain amount of interchange, but only so much as will ensure that weaklings are excluded from the inner party and the ambitious members of the outer party are made harmless by allowing them to rise. Proletarians in practice ordinary folk are not allowed to graduate into the party. The most gifted amongst them who might possibly become nuclei of discontent are simply marked down by the thought police and eliminated. What was it, Bertrand, Lord Bertrand Russell said the same thing? Those who, who we can recruit and by scholarships into the, the granite halls of Oxford and Cambridge, he says, those who will, will not go along with us and who are, who are bright, basically, would have to be uh, extirpated. Same thing, eliminated killed in other words. And he says, but this uh, state of affairs is not necessarily permanent, nor is it a matter of principle. The party is not a class in the old sense of the word. It does not aim at transmitting power to its own children as such, and if there were no other way of keeping the ablest people at the top, it would be perfectly prepared to recruit an entire new generation from the ranks of the proles. In the crucial years the fact that the party was not a hereditary body did a great deal to neutralize opposition. The older kind of socialist who had been trained to fight against something called class privilege assumed that what is not hereditary cannot be permanent. He did not see that the continuity of an oligarchy need not be physical, nor did he pause to reflect the hereditary aristocracies have always been short-lived, whereas adoptive organizations such as the Catholic Church have sometimes lasted for hundreds or thousands of years. Quickly mentions this too. He says foundations that can run the world don't, don't have to change. You can set up a goal, like dominating the world on this sector. The foundations are all specialists in their own areas. And they can hire generation after generation after generation of guys who come in, take the little thou and the whole bits, and continue on their part of the world agenda. doesn't matter which parties come and go. They come and go and come and go. It doesn't matter. The foundations can stick on with, with trillions of dollars to back them all and, and get their agenda through. I say a ruling group as a is a ruling group uh, so long as it can nominate its successors. The party is not concerned with perpetuating its blood, but with perpetuating itself. Who wields power is not important provided that the hierarchical structure remains always the same. The same guys at the top above um your prime ministers and presidents, you see? All the beliefs, habits, tastes, emotions, mental attitudes that categorize our time are really designed to sustain the mystique of the party and prevent the true nature of present-day society from being perceived. Physical rebellion or any preliminary move towards rebellion is at present not possible. From the proletarians nothing is to be feared. From the people at the bottom, the ordinary people, there's nothing to be feared. Left to themselves, they will continue from generation to generation, from century to century, working, breeding, and dying, not only without any impulse uh, to rebel, but without the power of grasping that the world could be other than it is. It's important that they can't grasp that the world could be other than it is. In fact, the ideas that could be better are from the politicians to the the proles at the bottom. The proles believe it because they won't do it themselves. They can only become dangerous if the advance of industrial technique, it's a technique of, of, of controlling everything, but it necessary to educate them more highly. That's when they become dangerous. Um, but since military and commercial rivalry are no longer important, the level of popular education is actually declining. 1948, What opinions the masses hold or do not hold is looked on as a matter of indifference. They can be granted intellectual liberty because they have no intellect. In a party member, on the other hand, not even the smallest deviation of opinion on the most unimportant subject can be tolerated. And that's why you won't find a single individual who's put up there to push the global warming agenda, climate change agenda, which is redistribution of wealth from all the countries to the banks themselves, not to the poor. That's why not one of them, actually they're all clones of each other, because they have the same prattle, the political speak prattle, and they've learned it all off by heart. They can't deviate with their own personal opinion on anything. They're like robots when they speak. A party member lives from birth to death under the eye of the thought police. And now it's true. You see, if people who are important to this system, to run the system without too much of a hassle happening in their time, uh, are more spied upon than the general public. It's more, see, if one of them broke ranks, then it's an important person has broken ranks and spoken the truth. They can't allow that. When the Soviet Union fell, of course, they did docu- lots of documentaries on it. They got into the archives in the Politburo. And they, they mentioned that, that it's more important to bug all the homes, etc., and keep track of, of all the people that work for them in the bureaucracy than the proles at the bottom. There's nothing to fear from the proles. And that's a payoff, of course. That's the ones at the top now. On top about the top, they're the ones that we see, which are three employees. Right to the straws, cans and everybody else. They're heavily, heavily watched. And believe you me, when they bring them down for some reason, it's not because of what they did that we're told. It's because of something that they didn't pass on to their bosses above. Because every, all the big, the big, big deals are passed on. Upwards. So it says here, no, 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 it says, um, nothing that he does is indifferent. His friendships, his relaxations, his behavior towards his wife and children, the expression of his face when he's alone the words he mutters in sleep, even the characteristic movements of his body are all jealously scrutinized. Not only any actual misdemeanor, but any eccentricity, however small, any change of habits, any nervous mannerism that could possibly be the symptom of an inner struggle is certain to be detected. Now they're doing that with us all now because we're all potential terrorists and, and criminals. You see, And of course, in this book, if you read it, you'll find out that everybody's spied on all the time. With a big screen in your home and with cameras in your home and so on, which of course is where they're all going with us. In fact, you'll buy them. That's the only difference. You'll buy them. In that article I read last week or so, it was about the, I think Toshiba, one of the big companies are putting, um, cameras to watch you. But actually they've been doing that for years and years and years without telling you. And you'll invite it into your home, you see. So it says here, on the other hand, his actions are not regulated by law or by any clearly formulated code of behavior in oceania there 's no law. Uh, thoughts and actions which, when detected, mean certain death and not for formally forbidden and The endless purges, arrests, tortures, imprisonments, and vaporizations are not inflicted as punishment uh, for crimes which have actually been committed, but are merely the wiping out of persons who might perhaps commit a crime at some time in the future and you think that uh, that the Minority Report movie was a breakthrough. Here's 1948. A party member is required to have not only the right opinions, but the right instincts. They're psychopathic. They sniff the winning side, you see. Many of the beliefs and attitudes demanded of him are never plainly stated and could not be stated without laying bare the contradictions inherent in, he calls it insoc, that the system itself you're living under. If he's a person naturally orthodox in Newspeak, a good thinker, they call it, he will. He got this all from the Frankfurt School, by the way. They had these terms, they used them in the Frankfurt School, which runs still was up there today, running at your culture. Like good and ungood. But in any case, an elaborate mental training undergone in childhood and grouping itself around the Newspeak words crime stock, black, white, and double think makes him unwilling and unable to think too deeply on any subject whatsoever. So what you've really got is a a totally controlled, managed system from birth to death across the world. It has to be uniform. That's why Reuters gives every country the news. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix, reading a few books that are very, very important to understand because, as I say, this, this kind of book is kind of leaked out uh, by people who were trained for their particular jobs in the ruling society of the world, and uh, from I'm talking from childhood too. And of course we know that Blair or Orwell actually came from an intergenerational class of bureaucrats, as they generally are. And so, in page 182, he talks about how they had wars after wars after wars in order to get the world system together, which is exactly what we've gone through. In fact, quickly goes even further from the records of them, and from the Boer War onwards, he says not a single war wasn't started by this this group behind the scenes to get world government, you see. It says here in 182, it says, it was only after a decade of national wars, civil wars, revolutions and counter-revolutions in all parts of the world that Ingsock and his rivals emerged as fully worked out political theories. But they had been foreshadowed by the various systems, generally called totalitarian, which had appeared earlier in the century, and the main outlines of the world, which would emerge from the prevailing chaos, had long been obvious. What kind of people would control this world had been equally obvious. The new aristocracy was made up for the most part of now- We've mentioned technocrats many times here on this this particular broadcast. What can people make up this world have been equally obvious. The new aristocracy was made up for the most part of bureaucrats, scientists that are appointed bureaucrats now. They're called technocrats. Experts, technicians, trade union organisers, of course, they had them in their, 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 their bag for a long time. Uh, and uh, technicians, trade union organs, publicity experts, they run the system, you an awful lot of uh, work for them, sociologists, teachers, journalists, and professional politicians. These people whose origins lay in the salaried middle class and the upper grades of the working class had been shaped and brought together by the barren world of monopoly, industry, and centralized government. As compared with their opposite numbers in past ages, they were less avaricious, uh, less tempted by luxury, Hungrier for f- pure power, and above all more con- conscious of what they were doing, and more intent on crushing opposition. This last difference was cardinal by comparison with what. It- of, of, of that existing today is all the attorneys of the past were half-hearted and inefficient. The ruling groups were always con- infected to some extent by liberal ideas and were content to, to leave loose ends everywhere to regard only the overt act and to be uninterested in what the subjects were thinking. Even the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages was tolerant by modern standards. Part of the reason for this was that in the past no government had the power to keep its citizens under constant surveillance. This is 1948 from a guy who was reared reared to be part of this governing class. The invention of print, however, made it easier to manipulate public opinion, and film and radio carried the process further, with the development of television and the technical advance which made it possible to receive and transmit simultaneously on the same instrument, private life came to an end. What have you had over the last few years here? Privacy's dead. Internet, etc., Every citizen, or at least every citizen important enough to be worth watching, could be kept for 24 hours a day under the eyes of the police and in the sound of official propaganda, with all other channels of communication closed. The possibility of enforcing not only complete obedience to the will of the state, but complete uniformity of opinion on all subjects now existed for the first time. And then he goes into, again, uh, basically standardizing of public opinion, which they do through Reuters, etc., so, that these are the books you've got to read as well. There's many of them to understand what's happened in the past, in your lifetime, what's happening now, where they're going with it, and how they'll train you to go along with it without even knowing. From hearing from Self, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to I me, mean your God, or your God's Go with you.